Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote in 2013, quote, The federal court system has become a model for justice throughout the world. Foreign jurists uniformly admire United States courts. So how would he explain the events David M. Dorson has written about in his latest book, Judicial Mayhem, How Federal Judges Betrayed Their Public Trust? It's published by Headline Books and brings Mr. Dorson, who has served as the Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York and Assistant Chief Counsel of the Senate Watergate Committee to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, This is a story of a man living out the American dream only to see it become a nightmare. As far as you know, is it unique or have there been similar cases? Well, I, this is the worst I've heard. And uh, one problem is we just don't know. Uh, the lower courts do not get the attention that would provide them with the, uh, would provide people with an opportunity to find out about these cases. And it takes a really an unusual set of circumstances before it's brought to order. There are some organizations that deal with criminal cases that are wrongly convicted, with deal with wrongly convicted people. But this is a case where a man was virtually bankrupted, uh, deprived of every dime he had, but um, no one could help him until, I guess, I came along. You write that it reminded someone from the civil rights movement of some of the persecutions against blacks and, and their allies in the police courts of the Deep South in the 1960s. But this case began in 2001. Is it important to note who was in the White House at the time? No, not really. I mean, this is, uh, this is just a crazy case where uh, just sort of like a perfect storm uh, just how the case started was that the FBI was conducting a sting to try to discover uh, crimi- uh, criminally inclined people join a uh, scam. Uh, they tried uh, Michael Lauer, who's the key person in the book. He turned them down, but people who knew him uh, fingered him, who said falsely that he had done things wrong. Uh, as a result of that, uh, the FBI conducted an investigation. It did not find anything, but then took the unusual step of referring the case over to the Miami-based SEC rather than going back to Washington or New York, which is where Michael Lauer was. And these the people who uh, ran the thing were new at, new at hedge funds. They didn't know what hedge funds was. Michael Lauer was a successful hedge fund manager. And they just thought they had the greatest case in the world. In fact, in a press release, they they compared him to Bernard Madoff, hmm. who got away with billions of dollars. And Michael Lauer, he, he was acting, in my view, and as explained in the book, perfectly legally. Well, let's talk a bit about uh, his story. Uh, Michael Lauer, or Michelle Lauer, that was his birth name, I guess, grew up in Eastern Europe in an area that's once again in the news. And he and his mother were able to come to the United States in 1971 under difficult circumstances when he was 15. Um, That's right. That's right. He was born in Poland. Well, it's kind of that Poland-Ukraine, that whole area. He was in part of that... uh, Part of the world that has had tragedy after tragedy, and uh, he was able to leave. Uh, he was 
Jewish, although a little really half Jewish because his mother was a, a, a Russian Orthodox, but he and his mother were able to leave speaking no, not a word of English between them and having really no money between them to come to the United States where um, he did uh, remarkable things to join the financial community um, at the uh, you know, behest of some Nazi hunters whom he, uh, Simon Wiesenthal, who was a family friend. Well, let's back up a bit. Uh, one of the one of the problems uh, was that uh, Jewish organizations only consider you Jewish if your mother is Jewish. Well, so, Israel does. Israel, uh, no, no, Jewish organizations, are, I think most of them are rather more are broader, okay. and they will even help non-Jews. But in Israel, which the which is the country that was Michael Auer's first choice, he would not be considered Jewish, because, and his mother was not Jewish. And uh, you have to have a Jewish mother to be considered Jewish in Israel. So you mentioned Simon Wiesenthal. What role did he play in this story? Well, he was a family friend and advisor, and he uh, helped direct uh, Michael Lauer and his mother to uh, how to leave leave the Poland-Ukraine area and come to the United States. And then um, he became a family, close family friend and counseled Michael Lauer as to what to do. Interestingly enough, Michael Lauer is very patriotic. He served in the Marines. He wanted to uh, join the CIA. Uh, but Mike, um, Simon, Simon Wiesenthal talked him out of it and suggested something that was so off the uh, radar screen that Michael Lauer had trouble believing it, namely, go into the world of finance. Well, well, back, you know, let's back up a bit. They came to the United States in 1971 when Michael Lau was 15, penniless, right. spoke no English. And then he worked his way through CCNY while driving a New York City taxi cab. Exactly. Uh, and then, uh, as you say, he uh, tried to get it. He went to the Marines and did other stuff and eventually entered the world of finance. How did that happen? He began well, at the bottom, didn't he? He did start at the bottom, and uh, he uh, he had uh, contact there and took exams and examinations. And these people are you know very very intense and very single minded in, in finance. And he did very well. Eventually became an analyst, and in around 1990, he decided that he could run a successful hedge fund, and did that. So he really worked himself up. It was uh, written about in various magazines and books as an excellent stock picker. And that was his goal. And uh, you'll ask me some questions, but he was incredibly successful as a hedge fund manager. By the year 2000, he was managing over a billion dollars. And by 2002, he was worth over a hundred million dollars, and he became extraordinarily successful. Well, you describe the uh, his business practices as a hedge fund manager in one of the early chapters, and I must admit, uh, the rules and the complications were a bit too much for a simple talk show host like me to understand. Well, basically, what was the nature of his business? Well, basically, he dealt with. Uh, sophisticated people, people who had a substantial amount of money, such as a million dollars, uh, to invest. 
Um, and he talked to them. He went out and solicited them, including uh, uh, organizations like uh, Morgan Guarantee or uh, some of the large uh, pension funds of universities and convinced them that he could do a good job. And he did. I mean, he was regularly one of the top hedge funds performing. And his specialty was small, privately held corporations that he would shepherd through into to become publicly held by the stock first hedge fund at a very low price and hope they did well. These were startups, garage type places. And his basic theory for most of his success was he would take them public, he would support them through his two corporations and two management companies, and some of them would do fail, some of them would fail, and a few of them would become successful. And as a package, they would become incredibly successful as a hedge fund. So that he was dealing with these startups, you know, uh, companies that you know, he never quite got to the Microsoft or Apple level, but he, he did very, very well. I mean, he made, uh, he was one of the most successful hedge funds. He was making uh, money even in the worst of years. So people would have recognized the name of his organization, Lancer Hedge Funds. That's correct. He, he, he operated with, uh, under the trade name Lancer Hedge Funds, and uh, he was well-known and well-respected. And uh, his three hedge funds were worth collectively over $1 billion. So That's right. And he was the largest personal investor in his hedge funds. So he put, as they say, his money where his mouth was. He invested his own money in the hedge funds. He had uh, a very successful operation. He did not siphon money off to, or do anything with it. And consequently, when uh, he was... Uh, investigated and sued by the SEC and everything went downhill, he was left essentially penniless. Despite the fact that you say he always engaged in ethical and honest business practices. Yeah, yeah as you said. It's and he'd never been sued or accused of, of wrongdoing, right? No, he, no, he never was. Uh, and that's one of the, uh, they, they, there are various ways you can challenge hedge funds. Um, the SEC keeps an eye out for them, although they are lightly relegated uh, because they have sophisticated clientele. But he was never sued. He was there were no complaints against him, and the SEC had uh, has a thing called red flags. They never did that, and in effect, the um, SEC case came out of nowhere and. Was to, in my opinion, unjustified. It was. There's a lot of complexity. It's not easy. Uh, some of the SEC may have misinterpreted what he did, but they never produced witnesses that were convincing. They could never get an expert witness to say that what he was doing, he was doing what they accused him of, which was manipulating the price of stocks and overcharging the people in the hedge funds. They could never prove that. They could never get, as I said, an expert witness. In fact, he was uh, an award-winning analyst. Uh, exactly. And uh, had been a gener generous philanthropist. And he had good friends. Didn't he race cars with Paul Newman? You, you, that's the part, as you said. No, that's part of the book. One of the things was that he decided that he liked to race cars. He liked to fly. And he formed a... Uh, 
racing car, race car uh, outfit. And one of his top drivers was uh, Paul Newman. And they became lifelong friends, although Paul Newman was a lot older than he was. How important, how much of an accent did he have at this point? Was it still obvious that he was a, 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 had been an immigrant? Well, it, 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 it's sort of funny. When he came to the United States, he spoke no English and had a, when he spoke English, it was a bad, uh, well, a conspicuous accent, which he never totally lost. And I suspect that he kept a little of it just because it lent a little gravitas mm -hmm. and people might be happier having someone from Europe with European background run their hedge funds. But he, he, his English is fantastic. And uh, but as I said, is this trace of an accent if you really listen carefully? My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is David M. Dorson, whose latest book is Judicial Mayhem, How Federal Judges Betrayed Their Public Trust. It's published by Headline Books. Well, so you you kind of hint began talking about what led the Security and Exchange Commission and the Department of Justice to target him, but can you go into more detail? Sure. Um, as I said, uh, the FBI had a sting, uh, which promoted a couple of professional crooks in this in, in the securities as honest or well, dishonest people, but people to deal with, and they went to various people in finance. They were based in Florida. They uh, caught a couple of people who, who were willing to make investments in shady deals or launder money for narcotics people. And they arrested them. And, uh, and when they arrested them, they told them, you're in very deep trouble. And the only way you can, one way you can help yourself, the main way is if you finger somebody higher up. And a couple of people not to their credit, uh, complained about Michael Lauer. The FBI investigated him, interviewed him several times, and found nothing. And they went to the SEC with it because of the evidence they had. They were not unwilling just to drop it. And the SEC you know, just gobbled it up. There were some uh, people in Miami who uh, thought this was the greatest case. As I said, they compared it to Ber uh, Ber uh, Bernard Madoff. Who, and as I said, I think the book will convince any fair reader that Michael Lauer certainly did, do, did nothing illegal. Certainly did nothing illegal. You know, again, it, these are very difficult and tricky areas. But as I said, also, he, he never was sued. The SEC never went after him. And the Miami SEC did not check with Washington or New York, as far as my investigation showed and Michael Lauer's investigation showed, uh, and uh, just went full speed ahead and sued him uh, for every dime he had. I'm a bit confused about something. He was running a, a business in New York. Right. But all of this, uh, much of this, uh, involves... Uh, Miami, Florida. Um, right. Well, now I realize we're all part of the same country, but aren't the rules different in each different state? Well, how this is how a, much of a business did he have in Florida? As far as I know, none. As far as I know, 
and I've been, you know, I'm in close touch with Michael Lauer, still am. Um, I got into his case uh, halfway through, but we try to set aside a judgment, which we'll come to. Hmm. But um, he did no, the SEC did not present one trade he made in Florida or one customer of the hedge funds, that uh, an investor in hedge funds that came from Florida. What happened was, and I can go on on this thing, was when he was sued, the SEC made a somewhat hysterical presentation to one of the judges I heavily criticized. And they, before Michael Lauer even knew that he was being sued, every dime he had, whenever it was earned, it was earned 10 years earlier, long before any alleged misconduct was frozen and remained frozen throughout the case. So he had two residences, one in um, Connecticut and one in Manhattan. He had businesses in both places, nothing in Florida. The judges forced, ordered him to sell his residences, both of them, before there was one finding that he did anything wrong. They sold his car before there was one finding that he did anything wrong. And it, it was just an incredible situation. As far as I know, nothing like this has ever occurred. You use words like misguided, inept, and overreaching in describing the government officials who were going after him. Uh, now, uh, what was in it for them? Well, uh, you know, this is hard to say, and I, I don't want to come on too strong or be too harsh with the government SEC officials and people like that. Well, there's also uh, the he, Department of Justice involved. Isn't also, it? That's right. He was in the middle of the case in, in what I consider an attempt to force him to settle the case because the government had a weak case. The, the SEC had a weak case. They indicted him. And I'll just spend a minute on that. They indicted him four and a half years after they sued him for the same offenses he hired a lawyer, good lawyer, but then he had to abandon the lawyer or the lawyer had to abandon him because the uh, judge would not let him use his own money to pay for the lawyer. And he was saddled with a, a uh, um, public defender, happily a very conscientious and good public defender, but a public defender who during his long, during his long career handled exactly one SEC case in his life. They went to trial. The government presented the case, which was pretty similar to the case that the SEC presented, and he was acquitted. The jury just wouldn't accept the weak and at times frivolous testimony that they were presented, and he walked away from it. But that did not stop the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, from continuing their case against him. And do we have any idea why they continued to do that? Uh, it's it, since uh, they were had been losing up until that point, and and as you point out, had a pretty weak case. Um, I can uh, no, I, I try to interview this after the case ended. I try to interview people in the SEC and other people, including judges to try to find out exactly what happened, and no one would talk to me, zeros. And my, I, I, I could suspect the worst, but um, all I think I could demonstrate in the book is that the SEC was overzealous. 
the, they, they were unfamiliar with hedge funds. They saw this as a wonderful opportunity to feather their own nest, not financially, uh, I should say quickly, but in terms of, of glory and things like that. And I, I can say I could understand it because I was on as assistant chief counsel in the Senate Watergate Committee. It's a great honor, a great opportunity, but a great responsibility. And they did not perform the responsibility part of it. And they just outrageously, in my opinion, and eagerly uh, went after him. And as far as I'm concerned, the worst part of the whole story is, is about the judges that handled the case before whom they handled the case. They disregarded or evaded established rules and procedures. Yes. And, and they uh, also went after the people around him. Were any of them culpable? Well, let's take the SEC. The SEC claimed that it was a massive fraud led by Lauer to make dishonest trades and, and inflate the value of the holdings, which was the basis for the payment that was made to him, his fees. Um, they, they found really nothing, but they didn't realize it. And I, I try to give them the benefit of the doubt and try to hope that they did not do anything maliciously, although there's some evidence of that. They Malicious for what reason? Because he was an immigrant? Well, because he, because it was, because he was a successful immigrant is one thing. Uh, he, they, he was a great opportunity for glory. Now, a lot of people go into the government in order to become rich or famous uh, some people leave the government to become rich. The ones who stay in the government want to have great successes to their credit. And they just had, they blinded themselves to the facts. In other words, what at the trial, at the, there was no trial. They moved for summary judgment, which is a procedure whereby you can get a judgment in your favor without a trial solely on paper. And they, ne they, they couldn't identify one single trade that Michael Lauer made, even though they accused him of making hundreds. And the reason they could not identify one single trade that Michael Lauer made was that he didn't make any. He had other people in his organization making trades, and his own organization, the, the Lancer Management Companies, were not allowed, or did not, chose not to, make trades themselves and did not hire any people who were licensed to make the trades. Well, wouldn't that have stopped them? Why did no, they... they, they no, no, no. What, what, the way they, their model was this. What they, they got investors, hundreds of millions of dollars from them, sophisticated investors. They then invested in stocks, mostly small companies, or, or all listed it's on some exchange or in some manner. And what they, what the, the people at Lancer did, was hire licensed traders to make the trades. The licensed traders, in most cases, in fact, I think maybe in every case, could not themselves make the trade. They had to do, have and make an arrangement with another trader who who was who made a market in the trade. And they accused Lauer of making hundreds of illegal trades, and he didn't and couldn't. 
And in fact, the, the, the scheme was impossible without the cooperation of many stockbrokers or traders. And they, they, they named none of them in the case. Michael Lauer, they also named none of Michael Lauer's associates in the company, the people who really did the trading. And they just made wild statements that he, Michael Lauer made the trade. They didn't identify one. His main job was to analyze stocks and to convince people to invest. All the trading was done by people whom he hired, none of whom were ever charged by the SEC. Not one other person, individual, was charged as part of this scheme. And it was impossible for him to do. It was impossible for the traders to do because they had to go to, um, they, you know, they, they, there were two levels of trades and, and none of these people were, were ever uh, sanctioned, were ever investigated by the SEC. Well, this sounds like a conspiracy involving the SEC and, uh, and a, a, a lot of judges. Uh, do you think this was an isolated case or might there have been similar ones over the years? Well, as I said, I, I just don't know. Uh, I, I, Michael Lauer, um, who suffered alone through this for a decade, said he, he thought it was widespread. I, who have done, I did securities cases, some security cases as a assistant United States attorney in New York, um, was unaware. I could not, I could not prove any and none were presented to me. So I have to take the position as a matter of ethics and good faith of saying, I don't know of any other cases. I would be surprised if there were no other cases but I cannot find them. Uh, incidentally, I sent my book to every active court of appeals judge and the chief judge of every judicial district, several hundred uh, judges, in the hopes that this will alert them so that they will not let this happen to others. I paid out of my own pocket to buy the book from the publisher and paid it to be sent to several hundred judges. Well, the judges don't have to worry because don't they enjoy life tenure? Yes, they certainly do. And it is a very, very difficult job to get rid of a judge. You have to go through the House of Representatives and the Senate. There have been a few, but not many. And I saw no, I must say, I saw no evidence of the judges taking money or doing anything. I think the reason... The main reason why they did it was either incompetence, in the case of the district judges, and a willingness to accept whatever the government told them, the SEC in this case. And as I said, I, I, I've encountered such judges as a prosecutor where I was welcomed them. I did not necessarily enjoy or feel that this was the right way to go about a case where a judge would, in effect, say, he would never say it openly, what do you want me to do? And that's what happened in the district court. Uh, it got more complicated in the Court of Appeals, which is the appellate court to which um, Michael Lauer and I went many, many, many times. We even tried to get to the Supreme Court. And I think that's a different story. And this is a, this is a fascinating story of, 
which I've tried to make accessible to all readers. Obviously, lawyers will have an advantage. Financial people will find it a little easier. But I think anyone would understand it. And what happened was the district judge, the trial judge, first one, there were two, appointed a receiver for Michael Lauer's two companies. And he appointed a receiver for the hedge funds, even though they were supposedly the victims of this fraud by Michael Lauer. In other words, they put in receivership, taking away all power from the owners of the of the uh, hedge funds, which was unheard of. And what made it doubly or triply worse, they picked the same person, the judges picked the same person to be receiver in both cases. I'll have to pause there because that's tricky. Well, in other words, they picked they had a receiver for the two companies that Michael Lauer ran as management companies. We they uh, were, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. They were dealing at arm's length with the hedge funds who were the investors. So they were the people who were allegedly defrauded. So the trial judge picked the same person to be to run the case for the victims and for the alleged perpetrators. The same person, Michael Lauer, to his credit, screamed bloody murder. I screamed bloody murder. But no, you know, the judge said, well, there's, there's, we, there's no actual conflict. It's a potential conflict. It was an actual conflict. It's like representing two parties to a contract who are suing each other. It was terrible. And the judges in the district court just wouldn't pay attention to it. I don't, as I said, I think they were over their heads. Uh, I'm trying to be charitable. I, 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 I really cannot say with in all fairness that there was anything more corrupt about it, but they looked took the easy way out. Then what happened was this. Where the, the receiver joined forces with the SEC. In other words, this is a, ju a judge helper who is supposed to help the judge and be neutral, and he helped the SEC go against Michael Lauer. Because he was the receiver for the hedge funds, he had access to the hundreds of millions of dollars of their money and investments. He sold those off at fire sale prices hmm. with the consent of the district judges to pay himself. When the case was over, the receiver, who was supposed to be neutral, had pocketed with his uh, assistants and people he hired and something like 70 or 80 millions of dollars, which was more than the investors got. I mean, this is unbelievable. Normally, a receiver may, may, may take 5% to just manage the companies and do things like that to uh, see them through a, a hardship. In this case, the receiver made more money much more money than he he recovered and paid to the um, investors. It, it, you know, it, it's it's a mind-boggling story that I'm 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 not happy to tell it because what it meant was that Michael Lauer was effectively bankrupt, and I and we'll, we'll and we'll continue with that in just a moment. This is. WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. No, 
hope you're enjoying my conversation with David M. Dorson. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Judicial Mayhem, How Federal Judges Betrayed Their Public Trust. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's uh, give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to David M. Dorson, whose book, Judicial Mayhem, How Federal Judges Betrayed Their Public Trust, is published by Headline Books. Okay, so what happened was uh, the... Uh, the government and the federal courts deprived Lauer of the use of his money, forced him to represent himself. How long was he representing himself in the courts because the federal courts had imposed a $62 million judgment against him? He, he started in mid-2003. The case started. And I did not get into the case until 2012. So for nine years, he was by himself. And I'll, I'll mention one other thing. Not only was he his own attorney, but the judge who was overseeing the case ordered him not to talk to investors so that he was representing himself. And not only could he not get an attorney against all these lawyers from the receiver and from the SEC, but the judge told him that he could not talk to investors. It's like... Who might have defended him and... Well, I say, can you imagine this? Look, a lawyer, I'm a lawyer. If I'm representing somebody, I want to talk to the investors to see if they were defrauded or what they'd say. A lawyer would never be so prohibited. And he and the person, Michael Lauer, who, remember, grew up in Poland and uh, near the Ukraine, next door to the Ukraine, and spoke no English when he came here, did not get civics classes in high school because he didn't go to high school here. Um... He could not talk to witnesses. He was prohibited. And I, I, I will say, as an aside, he did talk to one or two and never mentioned it to me because when I handled the appeal to try to get the first appeal, there were many appeals, the first appeal to get it reversed, I did not know about that. And he was embarrassed because he had, although greatly inhibited, he, he was unprepared to argue for himself because he wrote the brief on which I argued the case. And he never mentioned this. So that here is somebody who was ignorant of, of, of uh, American court system, couldn't have get a lawyer because every dime was frozen, even mo- illegally money that was innocently obtained, even according to the government. And the judge prohibited him from talking to some of the key, many of the key witnesses. Uh, it was just bizarre. And yet the judges seemed to think this was fine. And you got into it nine years after this whole thing began. How did you become involved in the case? Obviously, he didn't have the money to hire you as a lawyer. No, I did the whole thing on a contingent basis, which would mean only, which meant only if we, I got the case reversed and he then was able to recover money from the government, but I get paid. And I got this to a friend, a colleague of mine who was also participated, although not to the extent that I did. 
as I mentioned, he, he got he hired a good attorney in Florida, and then had to abandon him. But the attorney had a friend in Washington, which is where I moved from New York. And a friend, um, Alan Gerson, a, a great guy who died, unfortunately, a few years ago, was an international lawyer, and he enlisted me in the case, and I basically handled it with uh, the advice of Michael Lauer and Alan Gerson. So that's uh, how I got into the case. And um, he had already written the brief on appeal, and I was asked with three weeks to, less than three weeks to prepare to argue this case before the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, which is based in Atlanta. So that I went into the case with misgivings, but a feeling, uh, recognizing, I think, is truthfully, that he was better off with a lawyer like, you know, a lawyer who knew what he was doing and was slightly unprepared than doing it himself, which he had done for nine years, but very, 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 well, totally unsuccessful, I'll say. Well, as we mentioned earlier, you'd been an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and assistant chief counsel of the Senate Watergate Committee. But you're, you've also had some pretty impressive clients, which included General William Westmoreland, John and Maureen Dean in a libel suit against G. Gordon Liddy and others, and a, and a corporation owned by the Hunt brothers and Arab sheikhs during the collapse of the Silva model. And yet, uh, I've heard that you're saying that this may have been your most extraordinary case. In retrospect, it certainly was. I mean, you know, it was, I, I was used to dealing with with good judges as an assistant U.S. attorney. Not necessarily the best, but some of them were, some of them weren't. Well, we still see that today. Uh, Absolutely. The news is filled with uh, cases where we say, how did that judge make that decision? And it often has to do with politics. Was, do you think was politics was involved here in any case? Well, as I said, I think the judges in the district court, the trial court, were incompetent for one reason or another. The main judge, or the first judge, Lauer, moved to disqualify after the judge, in effect, said, you, why did you do what you did, which is, in effect, judging before mm -hmm. the, the jury heard the case. And the, the first judge handed the case off to a buddy of his who was, had a courtroom next door, and that judge handled the, most of the case. That judge had previously been a state court judge, worked in the lands department of the Department of Justice, had just been appointed or a year earlier federal judge, and knew nothing about the securities laws. And I think he just was over his head and would you know, try to do whatever he could to get it, not to have to deal with the difficult issues and solve this problem by seconding everything the SEC told him. The situation was different on appeal. What, 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 if you lose a case, you have the right to appeal to the United States Court of Appeals. Most people don't do it. It's expensive. It's time consuming. It's difficult. And you're usually unsuccessful. Well, the appeal to the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, which includes Florida, which has also been in the news in the uh, with former President Trump, is based in Atlanta. Those judges, I think, were competent. I, I wasn't. I, I was never had never the feeling that they were incompetent or indifferent 
in the sense that they could not handle the matter properly if they wanted to. And I think what they realized was that by the time they got to the case, which was 2012 and in several proceedings thereafter, virtually a disaster had struck. In other words, if they found that Michael Lauer had done nothing wrong, which nothing illegal, and reversed the case, all the money was gone. As I said, the receiver sold a hundred billion dollars worth of, of, of assets for something like 135 million. And he wasn't culpable? He, well, there's nothing we, I could do. I, I don't know what happened. I think, I, as I said, I just don't know what happened. We never were able to question him. Uh, it was, it was, it was, you know, he would sell it to insiders in violation of rules. He would say, uh, he would not give it, uh, people a chance to buy it and make the quick, the quickest deal he could. So that by the time, and then the receiver was getting paid out of this money. So by the time the case went to the court of appeals, virtually all the money had been distributed, had been eaten up by the receiver and his colleagues, or had been paid out something like $50 million at the billion to other investors. So that the Court of Appeals, I believe, was faced with a situation where if they reversed, it would be a disaster. It would be, it would be like you know, reversing after somebody was convicted and given the death penalty. But Michael Lauer was given the financial death penalty. So, then, so you couldn't just try to reverse the judgment against him and get his money back. There was no, what that, I think the judges recognized that, and they um, and they just refused. They, they they were in a position where virtually all the money Michael Lauer had lost a hundred million dollars hmm. that he most of which he had invested in his hedge funds. And in the same stock, there was virtually nothing. There was just a, uh, maybe six, eight million dollars left, or ten million dollars left of that money, with all these investors also being denied recovery. And they, this is my guess. I, I have to say that no one said it to me, but it, it seems fairly clear that they made a decision to find a way to. Affirm the district judges who had acted improperly, in my opinion, below. And they just given a choice between reversing and having this whole thing come out as an absolute disaster. Because unusually, the district judge appointed a receiver before anyone had found that Michael Lauer did anything wrong. Receivers are usually appointed on the basis of some conviction or some judgment in the district court that a person had done something wrong. Here, the judge appointed a receiver without, without evidence that he had done anything wrong and without any finding that he, the, the flower had done anything wrong. If you reversed, you would bring all that out and put all these investors who, were, who lost 95% of their money in the position of, of having no effective recourse. 
against the judges, against the SEC, against the receiver. And my supposition is that that's the, so they, they took the easy way out and wrote a, an opinion that, in my opinion, is in my opinion, is a disgrace, but found for the uh, from the district judge judges. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is David M. Dorsen, D-O-R-S-E-N. His latest book, Judicial Mayhem, How Federal Judges Betrayed Their Public Trust, published by Headline Books. Uh, you have written both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, this sounds uh, to some degree like a depressing thriller. You say that the courts treated you no better than they treated Lauer. That's right. Uh and, and, and I, I have well, actually my, my prior books included a book on Justice Scalia, who was a close friend with whom I disagreed violently and friendly. But, you, but your subtitle is a conservative justice's liberal opinions. Right. That's what I mean, you're absolutely right. I, I, I could not stand his conservative opinions, but we, we got along famously as friends. We would go to everything from the opera the horse racing races together. I did own a couple of racehorses at the time, but um, he was uh, he was, in my opinion, with, with one ex- possible two exceptions, intellectually honest. Uh, I don't want to get into a long discussion of Scalia, but he basically was very conscientious, and even though he had many liberal friends, including justices on the Supreme Court, the head of the ACLU. Nadine Strasser was a good friend of his, and uh, Ruth Ginsburg, a very liberal judge, and he used to travel together all the time and get together all the time. But um, I know I, I know a good judge when I see one. The other judge I wrote about a biography was Henry Friendly, who was the chief judge and a longtime judge in the uh, federal judge in the Court of Appeals, based in Manhattan. You called him the greatest judge of his era. I, I think he was, and I include the Supreme Court judge. He's not famous. He's not famous largely because he never got to the Supreme Court, and people often compare him with a judge who's somewhat more famous, Leonard Hand, who also not did not get to the Supreme Court. His uh, friendly's problem was that he was in private practice for many, many years and was not appointed until he was 60 years old and never had the opportunity to serve on the Supreme Court. He wouldn't serve today because he was a moderate conservative, moderate Republican, and no one would have picked a moderate Republican today. Uh, when he was appointed in 1959, uh, he, he would have been eligible for the Supreme Court, but he was just too old uh, after, to be appointed by a Republican because the Democrats were in power at that time. Now, so, go ahead. Well, you know, so that the, the point is, I know a good judge when I see one, uh, and you know, the judges were put in a impossible position, and it is very difficult to figure out what went wrong. I will say flatly, I don't think it, you know this was corruption in the sense of money passing. It was corruption in the sense of misusing power. And that's why the book has the subtitle it has. So this did not have a happy ending. No, it didn't. And uh, I I had many uh, applications to the Court of Appeals. Uh, In the end, end they threw out the case without giving an explanation. 
I tried five times to go to the Supreme Court. I was turned down all times, and I don't blame the Supreme Court. They're, they only take about 80 cases a year, and they get something like 8,000 applications. And Michael Lauer didn't perform any abortions. He didn't perform any abortions, and he didn't do any of the other things that get you to the Supreme Court, uh, sadly. And um, it's, it's just a sad story. Uh, as I said, the district judge entered judgment against him, second district judge, for $62 million. Hmm. Um, that's when I got into the case. I tried my best, and I failed. I mean, it's a, it, it's a sad situation, which I've lived with. It's been... Well, uh, the case ended in 19, 2016. Uh, I still think about things I, I could well, have done. And you, this book, <laughs> this book is to some degree his vindication. But what is his current situation? Well, I don't know too much about it uh, because we haven't really discussed it because it's it's, I mean, it's his personal life, and I don't represent him anymore. Uh, he had as a, a, a excellent home in the in. Um, uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, and an apartment in New York. And in fact, let me mention one other thing. He, this, he kept asking for uh, money to defend himself, and the SEC would say things like, if, if he only would sell his mansion in, in Greenwich. Well, his mansion in Connecticut was a, a nice home in a nice neighborhood and mortgaged to the hilt. So he had no money, and the judges, the judge said, the first judge said, you sell your first home, your both homes, and take, if there are any proceeds left, which there weren't, you could have those at the rate of $10,000 a month to hire lawyers and to live, which was ridiculously low for someone who I just, I will mention, had five children, four at the time, and one on the way. <laughs> and it was... You know, he was just in an impossible situation and had to move to a smaller place. And finally, uh, he moved to uh, a couple of times to go to cheaper and cheaper, had to borrow money. I don't know what he's doing. Uh, I, I just, you know, I don't think he wants to discuss it. It's, it's, it's a huge step down from flying your own airplane and racing cars with Paul Newman, although he is proud of what he did in fight. He, he's... Happy to see that someone, me, will test to his innocence, but it is it is a very sad situation. And uh, you uh, suggest here that judges uh, uh, are reluctant to admit that they're that they've made a big mistake. Uh, so he has to live with that for the rest of his life. Exactly. He's still a young youngish man. Well, he was uh, he was born, I guess, in nineteen. 19- Oops, 55. No, okay. He's in his 70s. Yeah, well, 60s, I think. Okay, even younger. Yeah. Well, anyway. He he, he was enjoined from ever doing any more work of the kind he was doing. And uh, that was also part of the judgment against him, along with the $63. Well, David, thank you so much for being on our show today. David M. Dorson, his latest book, Judicial Mayhem, How Federal Judges Betrayed Their Public Trust, published by Headline Books. Um, uh, what a sad story you tell. Well, it's, it's I sad. wish it had a happy ending. 
I, I, I certainly wish it did too. Uh, I thank you very much. I, I appreciate the comment. Um, that's life, and uh, you know, lawyers don't usually write about cases they lose, but I felt this one deserved it. Thank you again, and that does bring us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And I think that Elon Musk is still allowing us to stay on Twitter. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to, to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. BAI is in serious financial difficulties, and we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI. Org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Linda Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Judicial Mayhem, How Federal Judges Betrayed Their Public Trust by David Dorson. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining Remember what we call a BAI buddy for 10, 15, 20, whatever, however ever much you can afford. It allows us to plan for the future, and we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, we hope you'll call right now because we rely 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants. Uh, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. And we're the only station in the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. Help us stay alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And thank you so much for listening.